So maybe a sound check. How is it in the back? Okay. Sometimes I get quieter as I go, so just give me a good thumbs up if that becomes true. <sighs> this full confession. I had this image before coming up here of the high dive <laughs> and going up the ladder and looking over the edge and turning around, but all the steps are full with people, so there's no going back. <laughs> Our practice is like that, isn't it? There's some point in this practice where we've seen too much, we've experienced too much to go back. How many of you have had that experience? Yeah, me too. And so what is it that we've seen too much of? It's the dukkha. We've seen the dukkha. We've also seen those moments or experienced those moments where we're free from that dukkha. That's what I want to talk about this evening. The Buddha talked or he taught about many, many different things. There are several volumes full of his teachings, his direct teachings. All of them, at their essence, has to do with dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. When he was asked, actually directly, what do you teach? That was his response. He teach, I teach on the truth of dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. This is the first noble truth that there is dukkha. Not that everything is dukkha, but there is dukkha in this life. The fact that we are born as human beings, and Guy talked about this a little bit last night, there's, there's some pain in that. There's some suffering that comes along with that. There is dukkha. In fact, <laughs> another true confession, this might be one of those nights where it's just a lot of confessing, but last night, as Guy was going through his talk and got to the dukkha part, I was sitting there thinking, oh no, <laughs> that's what I was going to talk about. <laughs> but the reality is that we're all talking about that. That the essence of what everybody's saying is, you listen, you'll hear. There's the pointing out of dukkha and pointing to the way towards being free from this cycle of, of creating suffering in our lives. Actually, I was thinking that these Dharma halls across the world might be the only place for most of us where clinging 
And the creating of dukkha is discouraged completely. That clinging is not valued. We live in a culture uh, and we live, we're a room full of many, many different cultures. But I think it's fair to say that overall, the cultures we live in, there's a lot of clinging that they're based in. We've been taught how to cling. It's very natural to us. We've been taught how to create dukkha in some sense, in a very innocent way, somewhat. But this is true. And so we're so lucky to have spaces like this where we're actually discouraged from creating more, cultivating more suffering in our lives. And so the Buddha was really inspired when he first awoke. He didn't set out to teach right away. In fact, he wasn't so sure that we would understand uh, the profundity of what he had realized. And then through some encouragement and through some of his psychic powers, he was able to see that there were people in this world with just a little bit of dust in their eyes just a little bit of clinging and not seeing clearly. And he realized that there were those alive that could actually follow his teachings and be free themselves. And this inspired him for the rest of his life. He traveled by foot and interacted with many, many different people teaching the way to freedom. And so I find this really inspiring that we can do this. (laughs) This is possible. Yes, there's the dukkha, but yes, there's freedom from it as well. So to start with, on this path, we have to know what it is. What is this dukkha? We have to learn how to recognize it. And so this word dukkha in the Pali doesn't translate directly very well into English. And so there's different ways it's been translated. And so one we hear a lot is suffering. Dukkha means suffering. It's also been translated as stress. I really like the translation unsatisfactoriness. Being unsatisfied about something that's happening in the moment this feeling that this moment isn't the way it should be, when, of course, this moment could be nothing other than what it is. But we have this idea of what it should be. We have an expectation or a view, or we have an expectation or a view of ourselves in this moment, who we should be. And so you can see through this practice, how this is dukkha, this is unsatisfactoriness. And this dukkha is created by craving or clinging. We cling to these ideas of how it should be, of how we should be 
these ideas that are not founded in truth. And so when we do this, we create that unsatisfactoriness, that suffering. And we do it for many different reasons. Maybe a few of those reasons. First is that it gives us this sense of stability. It's a false sense, but when we can cling to things, it gives us this sense of stability. Stability is comforting. There's something very comforting about this idea that things will be just so, and that we can even control what that just so is. We do it because it gives us a sense of place, a sense of self. Again, that's very comforting to have this sense of place, sense of self, that solidity, this is who I am. But this, this is who I am being based in not truth. In fact, often what I find is this idea of who we think we are is so limited to what we really are. Our mind and our uh, view, our belief of who we are that makes us comfortable, even if it's, you know, not a great person or a clumsy person or not the greatest meditator, or maybe it's the opposite, I'm really fantastic all the time. I'm much smarter than everyone else in this room. Or whatever your story is, there's something about it solidifying around that that feels comfortable to some degree. But of course, it's not based in truth because we're so much more than that. We're so much more than our stories. And we're always changing always changing. But we cling to these ideas of who we are to give us this sense of place, a sense of self. We also cling to this idea that something outside of ourself will offer us happiness, long-term happiness, long-term satisfaction and pleasantness. We spend a lot of energy trying to, uh, or being motivated by this idea that we can find this happiness outside of just right here. And again, this is uh, not based in truth. Right here is always changing. There's nothing really tangible to hang on to. And so there's unsatisfactoriness. So this clinging, it is like a grip. And so if you'll take both of your hands and make a fist, it feels a bit like this. We have to use a lot of energy in order to cling. But this... Although uncomfortable, you can feel the dukkha, right? (laughs) This gets normalized. This is normal. 
This is how we go about our day-to-day when we're unconscious of things, unconscious of the clinging. And so now let go. You can feel the just being, the freedom in that. And of course, this is just an example of the real thing, but you get a sense of what this is. And so while we're here, we're actually bringing our attention to this and then finger by finger, releasing all of this doing, becoming, trying so hard, releasing all of that into just being. So much freedom in that. So that is why we're here. I want to read something to you. This is from Ajahn Amaro, who is British, but in robes as a Thai forest monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And he's been a real inspiration and teacher for me. The way to know if what we are doing is worthwhile is to ask, does this lead to the end of suffering or does it not? If it does, continue. If it does not, we need to switch our attention to what will. We can simply ask ourselves, am I experiencing dukkha? Is there a feeling of alienation or difficulty? If there is, it means that we are clinging or hanging on to something. We need to see that the heart is attached somewhere and then make the gesture to loosen up, to let go. Sometimes we don't notice where the suffering gets generated. We get so used to doing things in a particular way that we take it, that we take it as the standard. But in meditation, we challenge the status quo. We investigate where there is this feeling of dis-ease and look to see what's causing it. By stepping back and scanning the inner domain, it's possible to find out where the, att- the attachment is and, where, and what's causing it. Ajahn Chah, this is his teacher, would say, if you have an itch on your leg, don't scratch your ear. In other words, go to where the dukkha is. No matter how subtle it may be, notice it and then let go. That's how we allow the dukkha to disappear. This is how we will know whether the practice we are doing is effective or not. So that's what we're doing. We're noticing the clinging over and over and over again. And we're learning how do we slowly let go? How do we engage in that way? So there's different ways in which we cling. Many different reasons why we cling. At the heart of it all, I find it really ironic, but I think that we cling because we want to avoid suffering. It's kind of sweet when we think of it in this way. It's a bit of a protection mechanism, isn't it? We cling because we think it will prevent suffering. But you can see the samsaric loop 
As we cling, we create more suffering. As there's more suffering, we're motivated to cling more, to get rid of that suffering. It's a cycle of rebirthing of our ignorance and our misunderstanding. And we all do it. And so when I look at it in this view, I'm not so hard on this tendency, this habit of mind of my, of, that I have, that we all have. There's something sweet about it. Protective. On some level, I think really what we're all wanting is safety and happiness, right? And this clinging is, there's this belief, right? That that's what it'll get us. And of course, we start to see that that's not working, that it doesn't work, and that some other way is needed. And so we come to the practice. But even here, we still are stuck in that loop, and we find ourselves repeating those mind states, those mind habits. And it comes from a very instinctual, almost primal place. This place of wanting to avoid discomfort and this place that's wanting more comfort. So you can see this push and this pull that we're constantly actively in that is really quite unpleasant in the end but it's very instinctual. It's also coming from a place that's just not very conscious of that cycle, of that process, that this actually equals this. But when we start to practice, we start to see that this unconsciousness this clinging that we have a tendency towards, how it starts to drive our decisions, how it drives our value system in life, um, the different choices that we've made over time, maybe even the value that we have for ourselves might be linked in this way, coming from this place of trying to push away the unpleasant, whatever that means for you in the moment, and get more pleasant, more comfort. Really simple, understandable, right? So human. This is our humanness. So even on retreat, we see a lot of this. We come here perhaps thinking we'll do a much better job, (laughs) and maybe some days you will, where the clinging just isn't so satisfying and we see that we can let go really easily or not even begin the process of holding on, clinging. But most likely, especially at this point in the retreat, what we're noticing is a lot of the clinging, a lot of the dukkha creating. And although this is uncomfortable to see in ourself, it's important to see. 
it's important to remember that that is actually why we're here, or part of why we're here is to see the dukkha, to see how we're creating it, not to be run by delusion anymore. I'll tell you a story. This, was, this happened many, many years ago at the beginning of my practice. I was on a retreat. I believe it was just a week-long retreat. And I was in this very beautiful uh, scenic retreat center. And it was a beautiful time of year. And I was spending a lot of time practicing outside. And somewhere around day two or three, I just started to really notice the scenery. And it went from noticing to admiring the scenery. And it went from there to thinking a lot about the scenery. And the thoughts were something like, boy, I would really like to take a photograph of this. This would make such a great photo. And then over time, that thinking became actually a little bit obsessive, where I was looking for the places I would take photographs. I should tell you, I didn't even have a camera at this point in my life. But suddenly, not only was I looking for where I would take the next photograph when I would come back, apparently, after retreat and take all these photographs, but um, I started to plan out how I would show these magnificent, beautiful photographs that I was going to take. And then it went so far that I was really going to be an artist and quit my job. (laughs) And I had the whole thing planned out of where I would sell these photographs, who would buy them, who would admire me for them, the awards I would possibly get, the magazines that I'd probably be shown in. All within this week, I spent a lot of time, I have to say, (laughs) on this fantasy. But when I was in it, it sounds funny to say it out loud, but when I was in it, it seemed really important. It did. (laughs) I felt like I was having this aha moment on this retreat, that this was it. This was what my purpose was. It was what I was going to do. So Interestingly enough, when I got off retreat, I don't know if it was near my birthday or something like that, but someone actually gifted me a point-and-shoot. And I got to tell you, I barely took it out of the case. (laughs) I never got into it. It was all in my mind. I was never really interested in it. In fact, my husband now is very much into photography, and he's wonderful at it, and it drives me crazy. Because we can't go anywhere without him taking a photograph. And so you can see just what our minds can do. This obsession in the mind. Really, all I was doing was groping out into the world for happiness. I was looking for it somewhere else. And boy, did I hang on once I got that view and that idea there's my happiness. It's in photography. All the becoming that happened within that scenario over the course of that week. All of that energy that was spent in that incredibly important aha insight. At least that's what I thought at the time. And we do this in different degrees. 
We look outside of ourself and hang on for dear life because we think, this is it. There's the happiness I've always wanted. When I get out, then I'll really have it. And we do this on retreat because, you know, when we're here, maybe, maybe there is a lot of dukkha that you're experiencing. Maybe it's just not as interesting as maybe the, the ideas and fantasies and, and dreams that you can come up with in the mind and then quickly identify with. Those are pretty juicy. And so we're here to really watch that, the delusion just take hold. All of this fantasy and idea of what's true, it seemed so real and true to me. Not true at all. And so we're here to start popping those bubbles, to be, to be here. I mean, the ironic thing of, of that story is that I was in this really beautiful, peaceful place and I missed it completely because I was so outside of this moment, grasping around for happiness that actually was right there in front of me if I had just been there. Even just right now, sitting in the hall right here, right now with you, it's so beautiful in here. There's nowhere at this moment, I don't know if I would have said this at the beginning, but at this moment (laughs) (laughs) that I'd rather be. There can be so much contentment right here. This is where the happiness is. But we really forget that because we just don't have that mind training. We're not, we don't have that mindset yet. But we're working on it. We're training ourselves. So there's different types of dukkha. There's dukkha that can be born and fed by this delusion state. There's dukkha that uh, I call dukkha yak. And this doesn't come from the sutta. (laughs) But dukkha yak can be really helpful. Uh, It might even be what motivated you to come here. Dukkha yak is really seeing the yuckiness of dukkha, that heaviness, the the clinging, the tightness of it all. Um, Sometimes I think of uh, of dukkha and this clinging not so much like a fist, but as friction. That's what it feels like inside of myself, this friction with how things are. You know, instead of just being here in the flow of things, which is so much easier, but there's this, this friction that's being made against my idea of how it should be or what I want and then how things really are. Dukkha. So dukkha, yuck, we really start to feel that. We get to see it in ourselves and it's really motivating. It gets us here. It gets us on the cushion because we want to be free from it. So there's something really helpful about that. But... You know, we get this idea. So, so it's true that we're wanting to free ourselves from this patterning of creating dukkha in our lives. But we get this idea then that that means that we have to push the dukkha away. That in order to do that, we've got to, you know, kick it out the door. Keep it at bay. Ignore it. Push it down. I don't want it here. 
but you can see just in that movement of pushing away the tightness that comes in. It's not this. It's more of this. Again, there's clinging there. We're clinging onto this idea that this unsatisfactoriness should not be here in this moment. Isn't that wild? Of course it shouldn't be here in this moment, but actually it is. The truth is, there's the dukkha. It's here. Can we develop a relationship in a way where we know it, we see it, we're even intimate with it, we're, we're really getting to know it without feeling like we need to get out the bazooka and destroy, destroy, get rid of it, get rid of it. That's our inclination, right? That's what we want to do is just get rid of it because it's so dukkha, yuck. It just feels, ugh. So of course we don't want it here. But this, again, is creating more dukkha. Part of this, I think, is, you know, we start to judge ourselves when we see the dukkha. I know I've, I've certainly had those moments where it's just like suffering this and suffering that and I can't do this. And all of the, the story starts to come in, all the judgment. I'm a bad yogi. I can't do this. Everyone else is peaceful. I'm a mess. And there's all this, this judgment that comes in. We see the dukkha as an imperfection in ourself that we maybe feel ashamed of or maybe just really don't like. Maybe we don't even want to see it. We don't even want to admit that we're that imperfect. And so this aversion comes in, this hatred for the dukkha. And so we need to bring attention to this. One of the ways that we can work with this is to bring in the metta, our loving kindness practice. When we see this pushing away rejection in in this aversive way of dukkha, seeing if we can bring in this kindness, this friendliness, It's so counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive. I have a friend who says, well, if you poke a worm, it moves, you know? I mean, at the most primal level, we are wired to get out of the way of discomfort, to get away from it. And this practice is saying to, you know, turn towards it, see it, get curious about it, get in there. Know it. So counterintuitive. And so to do that, we have mindfulness to help us see it, perhaps even concentration to keep us there, but it's the metta that allows us to relax in the face of dukkha. It's that that attitude of friendliness towards even the, the ugly bits of ourself and of our experience that we see. Those nasty parts that we just would rather would poof, go away. Even those parts of our experience we're asked to turn towards and to see it for what it really is. 
the metta can do that. The metta can allow us to not only be friends with it, but to relax in the face of it. When we can relax in the face of it, I'll tell you, and I know that many of you have experienced this, that dukkha, that same cycle of dukkha, that same story that comes in, that same agitation, whatever it is, comes in, we see it again, and perhaps we're not so moved by it. We're not so perturbed by it. It's not so disturbing. Oh, it's just dukkha yuck. That's all right. I know this. And I'm sure even here on retreat, there's things, maybe if you've been on multiple retreats, you start to notice the things that really got you the first time you ever went on retreat. Not such a big deal anymore. Because we know exactly what it is and it's not going to move us. We can stay steady with our openness of heart and a mindful attention. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, this, a beautiful quote. I think it's, on, it's one of the titles, actually, of one of his books. Um, no mud, no lotus. The dukkha is the mud. And that dukkha can lead to more dukkha if we're not conscious of it. If we're not conscious of it, if we don't see it for what it is, it does, it goes through that cycle of samsara, of rebirthing our ignorance and misunderstanding. But if we do begin to see it, I mean, that is where the practice is, is where the dukkha is. If we get to see it, we see it clearly. We know exactly what this is. We don't have to cling to it anymore. We can release, we can let go. It's that dukkha that leads to freedom. Our freedom comes from seeing the dukkha and knowing it. No mud, no lotus. So then there's another form of dukkha that I call, ooh, dukkha, yes, please. (laughs) And this is the tricky kind of dukkha, not so obvious. It's the kind that looks really good. (laughs) And we just want a little bit more. It appeals to our greedy side to our wanting side. Here on retreat, sometimes this type of dukkha, I find, will even boost our sense of being a a really great spiritual person or a really good Buddhist. But actually, uh, it's based in this this, uh, idea of ourself, this greedy idea of ourself this simple wanting mind. And so we might see it in our practice, and I think it's even been named in other, in other talks, where we're sitting there and we're feeling really good about ourselves <laughs> and good about our practice. And maybe there's some real wholesomeness under that too. Maybe there's real cause for that. Uh, and, then, and then comes in this thought of, this, I'm so good at this. <laughs> I should really teach this. <laughs> or maybe you're sitting there and it's, this is pretty good, but it would be better if I was outside listening to birds. 
I would be, I would be really awake if there were birds right now. That would make this moment so much better. Or maybe it's, my meditation would flourish if this person next to me would just stop breathing so darn loud, or whatever it is. It seems so rational, this type of dukkha, this type of clinging, so rational. If I just had a little bit more of something, And you can see, you can hear the selfing that's happening in this, the sense of self, right? The the me-making, the clinging that's involved in this, the story of I would if there's this tightness that comes around that idea. We now believe this idea, and we will do many things to have that idea happen. We will do weird things (laughs) to make this idea happen because it seems so rational. But it's not based in truth. It's just based out of an idea that popped into your head. And then you went, hmm, yeah, that seems like it'll make this moment better. I'll hang on to that one. I have a friend who tells a story on his first meditation retreat where he had a lot of restlessness in the body, which is not uncommon, right, on your first retreat, or maybe all retreats. I mean, there's just restlessness that arrives. But he wasn't familiar with it. He didn't know what it was. And so he proceeded to make his space really comfortable, which is, you know, that's okay. We want to be sitting in a way that's supportive for our practice. But nothing was enough. And so he continued to search outside of what was actually going on internally, which was a lot of restlessness. Mind was worrying about this and that. You know, the body just hadn't settled down yet. And so he proceeded to build what sounds to me like quite the throne. And the way he tells it, he was sitting somewhere right in the middle (laughs) of the meditation hall. And he's the type of person that would just go ahead and do this. (laughs) And so the way he tells it was there were many, many pillows and cushions involved and multiple blankets because he was cold and needed every inch of him covered. And any, any way to satisfy just the smallest discomfort he would try to satisfy it. And so I just imagine this mound of cushion and luxury somewhere in the middle of the meditation hall and him sitting right in the middle of it all, squirming. Because, of course, it had nothing to do with the cushions. It had nothing to do with the meditation hall. It had everything to do with what was going on in his mind and in his heart. But the story that he was believing was that it had everything to do with the cushions and everything to do with the meditation hall. That was the story, and he hung on to it. He spent a lot of time building that spot and never found comfort in it. And so we do this with this type of, ooh, dukkha, yes, please. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to create that land of comfort, 
mostly resourcing outside of ourself, not looking internally towards what's fueling this, what's causing this right now. And it seems so rational in the moment. In the end, it's just a lot of (laughs) busy mental restlessness that he was creating, probably created more restlessness in all that activity than if he had just stopped and looked inward. And we recognize this story within us. We have our own story that's familiar. These are the ways that we cling and just proceed to create more clinging and craving. Sometimes this type of dukkha, I feel like, um, creates this wanting to speed up things, to speed up our insight. Which sounds reasonable, right? Let's get this going. But actually, there's a lot of dukkha in that, that wanting. I want to be awake now. There's a lot to do to get there. And so we think we can outsmart the moment. We think we can think our way to insight, figure it all out. We can spend a lot of mental energy in these moments trying to be clever about it. I know that I've definitely had these moments, and maybe you have too, where you're in that mode of trying to trying really hard to have that insight, and you get this glimpse of it perhaps, and now you're going to sit down and really intellectualize it and think it out, really figure it out. And then once you've really got it figured out, you start thinking how you're going to present this to your interview teacher. And you start the story of all the different ways in which you're going to tell the interview teacher this. And then when you're in there and you're talking about it and it's so profound and what they're going to say, wow, you're really awake and they're very impressed with you and all of this and you're getting really excited and you've worked this all out, spent a lot of time on it. You get into the interview and you start to describe the insight that you've intellectualized And it's complicated. (laughs) And even at some point, you feel like you're going in circles and confused. Anyone ever experienced that? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) I know I have. I've done that many times. We think we can just outsmart it. But these insights don't come from pushing and trying and groping out for, for experience for enlightenment, all this doing. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't come from up here. It's a heart-mind process that we're waking up to. It's a cellular knowing. I think of it as a cellular knowing, these insights. When they do arise, it's not because we were mining for them. They arise because of the, the causes and conditions, we're, we're ready for them. We're ready to see them. And when we do see them, we know it with our full being, not just from up here.
but we forget that and we get very involved sometimes in this doing of awakening. have something I want to read to you, but I can't see where the page is, so let me just see if I can find it. Oh, maybe I bookmarked it. Yeah, this is another one from Ajahn Amaro. It's easy to get very busy with spiritual life, even driven and obsessive. During the first 10 years of my monastic life, I became a somewhat fanatical monk. This might seem like an oxymoron, but it is by no means impossible. I was trying to do everything 120%. I would get up super early in the morning and do all sorts of ascetic practices, all kinds of special pujas and such like. I wasn't even lying down. I didn't lie down to sleep for about three years. Finally, I realized I had far too many things going there was, no, there was no sense of any internal spaciousness throughout the day. I was desperately busy with the meditation. During that time of my life, during that time my life was jammed full. I was always half fretful and fussy. I couldn't even eat or walk across the courtyard without it being a thing. Finally, <laughs> oh, is that familiar? <laughs> Uh huh. Finally, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? This life is supposed to be lived for peace and realization, for freedom, and my days are full and clogged up. I should have gotten the message long before. I used to sit flat on the floor, the use of a zafu being a sign of weakness in my eyes. Well, one of the nuns, getting so fed up watching me fall asleep during every sitting <laughs> that I came that she came up to me one day and asked, could I offer you a cushion, Ajahn? Thank you very much, I don't need it. She replied, I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually I went to Ajahn Sumedho, and Sumedho is uh, uh, the student of Ajahn Chah and the teacher of Ajahn Amaro. I eventually went to Ajahn Sumedho and said, I've decided to give up all my ascetic practices. I'm just going to follow the ordinary routine and do everything absolutely normal. It was the first time I ever saw him get excited. <laughs> At last, <laughs> was his response. I thought he was going to say, oh, well, if you must. He was waiting for me to realize that it, was, that it wasn't the amount of stuff I did the hours that I put in on the cushion, and the number, number of mantras that I recited, or how strictly I kept all the rules. It was more about embodying the spirit of non-becoming, non-striving in everything I did. It then dawned on me that the importance of non-striving was something Ajahn Sumedho had been teaching for years. I just had never heard it. So I find that when I'm in this place of becoming, this real dukkha, what helps me is to just get simple. 
And this is a form of renunciation. In many ways, we're already doing that here, but we complicate things. We can so easily, as Ajahn Amro said, make everything a thing. Get really involved in becoming this person that is a Buddhist meditator. I think uh, it's Ajahn Amro or Ajahn Sumedho who says something like, I can't find it in front of me, but it's something about, you know, stop doing this enlightenment. Stop becoming this enlightenment. Just be enlightened in this moment. Become awake and enlightened to this moment. Just this moment. But we, we do, we complicate it, don't we? We add in all of these ideas of how we should be. And so just becoming simple. Be more simple. Sometimes that's a mantra I just feed to myself. Be simple. When I see myself trying just so hard to do, be simple. Let go. Let go. This is what's meant by let go. We hear it all the time, right? Just let go. (laughs) What does that mean? This is what we're talking about. Let go of the clinging. Notice the clinging. And then through the noticing and getting to know it, see if you can let go of that clinging. And so finally, we come to the freedom of clinging. The experience of the freedom of clinging. We've all had these moments. Maybe they were quick. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were long-lasting and really impactful. But we've all had these moments. These moments feel, we feel open. There's an openness, an equanimity, a mindfulness, concentration, the lack of the hindrances, lack of greed, lack of hatred, lack of delusion. There's clarity in the mind. We see what's true. Sometimes these moments go really unnoticed because we're looking so hard for the dukkha. In fact, when they appear, our first thought is, well, what's going to go wrong next? (laughs) And we start looking for it. And we just miss it completely. Sometimes we do notice it and we get really excited about it. Ooh, it's happening. (laughs) Ooh, make it last. And right in that moment, we are clinging to the non-clinging, that moment of freedom. Ooh, I want that. Which, of course, we don't need to do, but it's our habit, and so we do. And so we just notice that. Sometimes we have these moments, and it's scary. It's so unfamiliar to us that the fear may arise. Or sometimes there can be uh, a real attack of the hindrances, almost like the self is coming back in. Hey, wait, what about me? And needing to reground in that false sense of selfing, false sense of stability that we're so familiar with. And so it can feel really uneasy at first when we have these moments. And just to know that that's really normal and that this practice is to keep turning towards the dukkha and also that sense of freedom. 
the more we can also see that's those moments of freedom from clinging, the more the mind can be inclined towards it. We can, we can uh, nourish those moments to happen again. They don't happen by accident. They're happening due to causes and conditions. They're happening due to the preparation and the practice that we've been doing. They're happening because the mind and the heart are ripe for that moment. So bringing our attention to these moments of non-clinging, this is the practice as well. And of course, all of these practices that we're doing, the layout of the Eightfold Path, the Four Foundations, all of these different practices that we've been teaching you, that they've been teaching you, all of this is leading to those moments. It's what the purpose is. And so when these moments come up, we can trust them. In fact, it often brings in a verified faith. We see it. It's real. This is possible. We've had a taste of freedom, a taste of what this is about. We can trust that. We can then trust our practice, the teachings, the process. It can be a place where we can reference back to It can be a refuge. I find the more and more these moments come up, it becomes what's valued, not the dukkha that we talked about in the beginning that is often so valued. These moments of freedom become what we value, that we hold so dear and so precious. So I'll just end with this quote from the Buddha. Just as the great oceans, just as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so also this teaching and discipline has one taste. This is the taste of liberation. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.